From the studios of the Optimism Institute, welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Burke, and in every Blue Sky episode, we'll be speaking to leaders, researchers, and thinkers whose stories and insights will remind us that there is always blue sky above. Sometimes you just have to get your head above the clouds to see it. In today's episode of Blue Sky, we're going to take a look at global development and consider whether we should be optimistic about the progress being made around the globe on issues like poverty, overall standards of living, war and peace, tolerance, and more. To offer his take on all of this will be my guest, Charles Kenny. Charles is a senior fellow at the Center for Global Development, a Washington, D.C.-based think tank that works to reduce global poverty and improve lives through innovative economic research that drives better policy and practice. His current work focuses on global economic prospects, gender and development, and development finance. He's the author of several books, including two that I read and really enjoyed, Getting Better, Why Global Development is Succeeding, and The Upside of Down, Why the Rise of the Rest is Good for the West. He's been a contributing editor at Foreign Policy Magazine and a regular contributor to Business Week. Charles was previously at the World Bank, where he worked on governance and anti-corruption in infrastructure and natural resources, and managed a number of investment and technical assistant projects. As you're about to hear, Charles is a really smart guy with interesting takes on a wide range of issues. And I hope you enjoy our conversation. I know I did. Charles Kenny, welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast. Thanks so much for having me on. Charles, you're a member of the Center for Global Development, a think tank. And I have always wanted to be part of a think tank. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> nobody seems to want my brand of thinking in their tank. Um, but could you tell us uh, what that's all about? What what do you do all? What do you all do at the Center for Global Development? We are interested in the policies and actions of rich countries that affect uh, developing countries. So we're interested in trade and migration and investment and aid flows and so on. And we're interested in the direct actions sort of you know the United States trading with Uganda as it might be, but also how they work through international institutions like the World Bank or the IMF or, or the World Health Organization. And your personal point of view, I don't know if it's shared by the entire group though, is that Americans who get discouraged about development overseas are kind of missing the point because we tend to emphasize things like GDP or the wealth, quote unquote, wealth of a country, and we don't think about more important measures. Can you describe that to me and, and your point of view on this and what so many people here are missing? Sure. I think there is a, an idea in rich countries, not just the US, uh, that the developing world is doing really badly. Uh, if you look at poll evidence, uh, people tend to suggest poverty is going up and that, that, that child mortality is going up and, and, and that things you know, are as bad or worse than they've ever been. And the evidence is the complete opposite. Um, I don't think income is a be-all and end-all measure, but if you want to look for a minute at, at, at global poverty numbers, uh, which is defined as $2.15 a day. It's a very low, extreme poverty number. But you know, 50, 60 years ago, about 80% of the world lived at that kind of level, um, below that kind of level of, of, of income, and now without sort of 10%. I think more importantly, uh, if you look at measures like child mortality, the number of kids dying before the age of five, we've 
just revolutionized the way the world looks in terms of that indicator. So it used to be worldwide, if you were a parent, you'd expect one of your children to die before the age of five. Worldwide, that is now a really rare event. We Just in the past 20 years, we've cut the child mortality rate by two-thirds. And you know, if you want one single measure of global progress, of human progress, I don't think there's a better one than the fact that it used to be a regular event that parents were burying their child. And now, even in the poorest countries in the world, you know, it's a comparatively rare tragedy. It's not rare enough. There are still many children dying of easily preventable diseases. But compared to where we were, you know, 30 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, it's just a revolutionary, awesome change. And what has driven that change? That change in particular a whole bunch of really cheap and absolutely fantastic technologies, frankly. Um, so uh, vaccinations, you know, loads of kids worldwide used to die from measles. Um, measles deaths have, have gone down by about 90%, I think. If you, if, you know, a whole range of, uh, of other childhood diseases have been almost wiped out. You know, polio almost wiped out, for example. Smallpox, something that killed about 100 million people in the 20th century, has so far this century, touch wood, killed no one um, because we wiped it out worldwide. But not just vaccines, also uh, antibiotics, um, another you know, complete miracle drug um, that can turn you know, cases of diarrhea that used to kill people, uh, now don't because you give them antibiotics and they don't die. Um, another thing that Diarrhea is a, a massive global killer still, um, but another thing that's really reduced the death rate hugely is just the figuring out that the combination of salt and water and sugar, if you feed that to kids who have diarrhea, they will not die from dehydration. So a whole bunch of really sort of simple-to-use technologies have been a huge force behind this, but I'll also say it's about parents you know, getting access to these technologies, using these technologies. It's about... Uh, governments providing these services on top of clean water and, and, and you know, other health services and so on. Um, it's about the global community supporting that through, through aid and investment. So, you know, it's not, it, it, it hasn't been easy. I don't mean to claim it's been easy, but it has been revolutionary and it has reached worldwide in a way that's just had this, this hugely positive and dramatic impact. And, and for some reason, we just don't properly appreciate it, it feels to me. And I know that's a lot of your work. And even, even in this country, you mentioned antibiotics, one of my favorite anecdotes, it's a sad one, but when Calvin Coolidge was a sitting president of the United States, his son died from an infected blister playing tennis. <laughs> antibiotics <laughs> would have saved him on a quick visit. That was not that long ago, hundred years ago. Yeah. Or well, an example I use uh, uh, in, in the book I've written for children on this is, is if you Look at the sort of formal portrait of uh, Louis XIV's family. This is the Sun King, richest guy in France, probably one of the at least one of the two or three richest people in the world at the time, right? Built Versailles, fantastic palace, you know, hundreds of rooms, beautiful gardens, all sorts of stuff. You look at the family portrait, you kind of go through the members of the of the family, and there, there are two kids who in the portrait actually appear as being in a little portrait of, them, of themselves, and that's because they died before the family portrait could be painted, so they died as, as, as kids from an easily preventable you know, set of conditions. There are two more kids who died from easily preventable conditions. The, the king and his wife both, both died of, of things that can be cured by antibiotics. You know, this whole family, richest family in France, and all of them are dropping dead from things that would be a minor inconvenience today. And it just sort of shows you how much 
progress we've made. And you've written several books, and I you just read, referenced a children's book, which I've not seen, but um, I've read Getting Better and, and The Upside of Down. I uh, loved them both. And in addition to sort of global health measures, life expectancy, child mortality, you also talk about technologies just improving standard of living and cost of living. Can you give some examples of that? Again, things that we tend to take for granted. So in a developing country where perhaps the GDP isn't growing as fast as we'd like or the, you know, the wealth of that country, but the standard of living and the cost of living has improved dramatically. Can you give some examples of that? I mean, one of the ones that's been fairly revolutionary is the mobile phone. Um, that worldwide, two or three decades ago, most people worldwide never made a phone call. And now, you know, even in the poorest countries, two-thirds of people um, have at least access to a, a mobile phone. And that's kind of revolutionary because something else that's changed over the last 100 years is the amount that people move. It used to be moving was massively expensive. You know, you'd have to spend a month's worth of income in order to travel between cities just because it took a hugely long time and the roads were terrible and, you know, it's just it was a really expensive endeavour. Transport is so much more efficient than even in very poor countries. People travel a lot, and that means you know, parents are away from children. Uh, they're away from their own parents, uh, you know, uh, children away from parents and so on. Um, and so keeping in touch with a mobile phone is a really important part of you know keeping families and friends together now in a way that it wasn't 200 years ago because everybody stayed in the same place. But on top of that, uh, the mobile phone is being used for all sorts of things, far more than in the United States even. In countries like Kenya, we're seeing people use the mobile phone for financial transactions. They, they, they use it as their bank, you know, their, their, their bank account, for example. And so Thousands of people who didn't have access to a bank account and were keeping their, their, their cash under the pillow, if you will, uh, uh, have now got access to sort of modern banking services. And so this one little technology has had this huge impact. But you can see it actually in the GDP statistics even. You know, I, I, a lot of it you can't see in the standard income statistics. But the mobile phone has had such a big impact that countries are realizing they have to sort of rebase their GDP. They have to refigure out how big their economy is because the, the mobile phone has got so big so fast that they're, they're undercounting its effect in the economy. And, you know, Nigeria's economy, when they sort of realized, oops, we're not measuring the impact of the mobile phone, went up by 20% in size overnight. I mean, it really got up by 20% overnight, obviously. The measurement went up by 20%. But that's how much of an impact uh, 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 the mobile phone's been having on the economy. And as I say, I think its effects go way beyond that, um, you know, keeping families together in contact, uh, able to support each other far more easily. And there are, there are a whole bunch of really simple technologies like that. Plastic sheeting is another one. You know, plastic buckets. Uh, 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 clothing, the cost of clothing has, has dropped hugely dramatically. The cost of lighting, there's a wonderful paper by um, uh, William Nordhaus, who the Nobel Prize winning, winning economist, he actually uh, went out, bought himself um, a replica Roman uh, oil lamp, bought himself a whole bunch of olive oil, you know, burnt the oil in the lamp, saw how much light that created and how much he paid for the oil and all that. Did the same thing with a with an early filament light bulb um, you know, from, from, from the 1900s, did the same thing with LEDs and so on and so forth. Anyway, he worked out that the price of light, so you know, what you pay in terms of light bulb and electricity or, or lamp and oil, uh, the price of light over the, the past sort of thousand years has gone down by way over a thousandfold, right? So, so it used to be that light was the privilege of the very rich who would have a candle next to their bedside, right? That was privilege having one candle next to your bedside at night. Um, 
Now, you know, even the poorest families in some of the poorest parts of the world have multiple light sources way more powerful than the candle and they're paying way less for it. So there are, you know, all sorts of, of technologies that just had a revolutionary effect, not just in the rich world, but worldwide. Okay, first off, did you hear how deftly Charles dodged my obvious plea for getting invited to a think tank? I told you he was smart. But in addition to his intellect, one of the things I find so compelling about Charles is the enthusiasm with which he delivers this encouraging information. And while people in the global development field will often speak about mathematical measures like GDP and rates of growth, Charles gets right to some of the very basic but hugely important developments. Lowering rates of infant mortality by two-thirds in 20 years is astounding. And he looks at the relative accessibility and affordability of things like lighting, sheeting, and clothing in ways that are very eye-opening. As he says, across the globe, we're seeing change that truly can be described as awesome. Getting back to our conversation, I asked Charles to talk about the world's response to COVID-19, and I started by suggesting that another thing we shouldn't take for granted is how rapidly we created and deployed a vaccine. I agree, although I, I will say, I think the COVID-19 vaccine experience is a sort of a sign of how far we've come and how frustratingly far we still have to go, if you will. From the moment that the, we understood what the pathogen was, what COVID-19 was, it was, a, it was a virus with these characteristics, to creating the vaccine against it was the fastest we've ever done it in history by, you know, some some fair distance. Um, uh, usually this is a five-year or ten-year process even recently. And, of course, for, for, for uh, many diseases through history, for a start, it took us ages to figure out what they were. You know, for, for, for most of history, we thought that, that something like uh, uh, cholera was, was caused by miasma, was caused by smells in the air. We didn't realise it was a bug, right? So, but even once we figured out that it was a bug, uh, the distance between uh, bug and vaccine against bug was, you know, 10, 100 years uh, rather than basically less than one. We then managed to manufacture these vaccines um, at a scale and a speed that we'd never done before by some margin. Um, you can compare it to the annual flu vaccine because that's the only thing we sort of manufactured it close to that scale before. And we did it far faster and far more uh, than we had the annual flu vaccine. And then it spread out worldwide faster than any vaccine previously has done, which is to say, you know, we kind of got to 10% coverage, even in the poorest countries, faster than any other vaccine. A big asterisk on that, a big sort of you know, uh, caveat, is it still took far too long. And uh, people in rich countries who were very low risk were getting access to this vaccine way before high risk people in low income countries. And of course, there's now the the sad fact of the matter is that, that we're kind of peaking demand on, on, on vaccines. Uh, people don't want the COVID vaccine uh, now um, and, and aren't getting vaccinated against it. Some because of kind of ridiculous conspiracy theories about it you know, being bad for your health, which it's not. Um, but many just because they've already had COVID three times and they've got you know, other health worries that they're, 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 they're more concerned with. And that, you know, that's sad um, and it's, it's you know, part of the problem. So, you know, on the one hand, yes, the world, we're in a better place than, the, uh, than ever. 
on the other hand, we could do could have done better, right? We 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 could have rolled this vaccine out uh, even faster, even more equitably. And I hope next time we learn the lessons of COVID nineteen and do it even better uh, because you know we have that capacity. Another thing that folks in this country tend to get down on is um, where the United States ranks with the rest of the world. And in the upside of down, uh, you talk a lot about that. And, and one of the things you said that I really liked was, it's not that we're falling behind, the rest of the world is catching up. And that's actually good for us. I think you said what's good for the rest is good for the West. Can you talk about that and, and how we should sort of reframe that debate? And the other thing I'd add that you said that I was glad to be reminded of, because when I was late college business school, the big threats or the big growing economies were gonna be Japan and Great Britain were gonna join the United States and all these years later, we're not talking as much about Japan and Great Britain. So anyway, that's a lot in that question. But if you could talk about, you know, what's good for the rest is good for the West and how we should think about that. Other countries getting richer basically means uh, more, more people to buy what America makes. But perhaps even more importantly than that, it means more people to create stuff themselves. And in particular, these new technologies we're talking about. China officially is producing more technology than the United States, at least according to one measure, which is uh, you know, patents, patents issue. China is issuing more patents every year than the United States. Frankly, if you look at the quality of those patents, uh, I think the US still actually retains um, some level of global leadership in, 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 in technology development. But the fact that China is developing some new technologies um, that you know, are, 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 are going to lead to more production, better production of new stuff is really good news. And we know that because the US already benefits from, from a whole bunch of technologies that China created, including paper and fireworks. Um, now, you know, July 4th, not the same without Chinese inventions, right? Other places getting rich and creative enough is really good for the United States because we will benefit from, from, from uh, some of those creations. I think that the rest of the world getting richer is, is really good news. Now, there are, you know, again, caveats to that. Uh, we've got to worry about uh, the global sustainability of consumption when we will get rich. You know, at the moment, uh, we're producing too many greenhouse gases. Um, and uh, if we continue to produce too, too many greenhouse gases, you know, that, that's going to be bad for us all too. But again, creativity helps with that. Um, and actually, if you look at you know, where is producing low-cost uh, solar cells at the moment, it's China. Uh, so, you know, the fact that places are manufacturing really cheap, zero-carbon uh, technologies is, is good for the United States, it's good for the rest of the world too. Um, so I really think we, you know, we need to move away from a sort of zero-sum thinking that if somewhere else is getting richer, we're getting poorer. And another way to look at that is the United States isn't the richest country in the world, right? It's, it's, it's the biggest economy in the world, at least uh, in market terms, it's the biggest economy in the world. You know, Monaco's far richer. Luxembourg's far richer. I'm not sure, you know, how much that really tells you. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, you know, I'm sure people in Monaco are very happy. Um, but, you know, there's, there's, there's sort of more to life than, than pure income measures. Uh, and, and, and it's not about sort of being the largest economy if it's about anything. It's about, uh, it, it's about being the best off economy. And those two things are completely separate. So at the moment, China is the biggest economy according to purchasing power parity. That's when you sort of uh, adjust the size of economies to account for, for how much things cost within the economies. And because uh, in China, it's cheaper to buy a haircut, for example, than it is in the United States. If you adjust for that kind of thing, the Chinese economy 
looks the biggest in the world in those terms. But on a whole range of measures of the quality of life, China is still somewhere behind us. So even if it's the biggest economy you know, in some terms, that certainly doesn't make it the place people would rather live. I'd certainly still much rather live in the United States. Thank you very much. Well, not to mention in in terms of technology and and patents and creativity, China's still sending a lot of students over here for higher education and those sorts of things. And there's a reason for that. Yeah. What's good for the rest is good for the West is the subtitle of Charles' book, the upside of down. And it's surprising, I think, how hard it is for us in this part of the world to get our heads around this concept. Our sometimes competitive, zero-sum way of thinking isn't very helpful. And Charles argues convincingly that we all benefit when anyone makes progress. I also think he makes an interesting distinction between measuring the richest countries versus the best off, arguing that the latter is what we should all be striving for. And now, Back to our conversation. Another thing, though, you've talked about as a benefit to the rest of the world catching up, if you will, is peace and lack of war. And and you've said, uh, I think you described it as poverty is the number one threat to peace. And one of the things I think get, gets lost because terrible things continue to happen around the world, but the trend in terms of active warfare, Stephen Pinker's written pers- persuasively about this, I believe you have as well. It's never been more peaceful. The, the, the global peace is, is greater than it's really ever been. Is that a fair characterization? That, that, that's right. I mean, the, um, the Ukraine war in Syria. So actually, more peaceful than it's ever been is sadly not true at the moment, um, it, at least in terms of global battle deaths. Uh, actually, it was lower in the, in the early uh, 2000s. Um, but it is still, you know, compared to nearly all of history, far, far, far lower than ever. The, the, the tragedy that is Ukraine and, and uh, the shock that is Ukraine to the international system, uh, the tragedy that was Syria, Ethiopia, you know, there are still uh, ongoing conflicts that, that are terrible. But as you say, compared to most of history, just sort of the amount of war going on is, is far, far less. And one big reason for that is, especially when you look at civil war, where do civil wars happen? Civil wars happen in poor countries. Uh, uh, Chris Blackman, who, who, who wrote a, a wonderful book, Why We Fight, um, civil wars happen in poor countries. Um, you know, with very few exceptions, that's the rule, right? And so the more that the world gets healthier and wealthier, the less we will see that kind of violence. And that's, you know, fantastic news. It probably sadly doesn't mean, you know, the permanent end of war, but it does mean we're, we're in a much better place than we were in terms of the amount of global conflict. Would you describe our own, the U.S. Civil War that way? I'm, I'm thinking about it in the terms you just described. We were obviously a much poorer country back then, but also the threat to the South was economic ruin if, if the institution of slavery went away. Would you, would you describe the Civil War in the United States as being driven by the threat to, the threat to economic vitality? Uh, one, I, 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 I worry about claiming any great historical knowledge of, 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 of a U.S. Civil War. So, 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 so let me uh, somewhat dodge the question by saying um, the reason that uh, uh, civil wars, one of the reasons that civil wars happen more in, in very poor countries today is that 
um, natural resources, and in particular sort of natural resources in a particular place like a diamond mine, uh, are a much more important part of the total economy. And so sort of fighting over territory really actually kind of makes sense in a way that fighting over territory does not make sense in the United States today um, because, you know, add up all the mining revenues together and they don't come to very much. Now, if you go back to the Civil War period for the South, uh, uh, it, was a, it was an economy far more resource-based than it is today. So that may be a factor, but I don't want to... <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it, is, it is always the case that when you look at individual uh, wars, um, and this is, a, again, a point that Chris Patton makes, in a, in a way, you need a theory that explains why they don't break out a lot. Um, because most of the time, most places, there isn't warfare going on, even in the, in the world's poorest countries, right? So, so you need a theory as to why one has broken out. Now, basically, the point is that, that uh, poverty is a factor that encourages, sorry, makes it much more likely that a war will break out. The specific reasons why any specific war breaks out have got a lot to do with culture and politics and so on at the time. And so, you know, that's kind of where I would leave that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Good answer. Another thing you've written about, and and there's a lot of literature these days on happiness and gross domestic happiness and measures like that. And you wrote, I think I'm quoting you here, the proportion of populations in surveyed countries who say they are happy has been rising over time in economies that have seen rapid growth as well as in economies that haven't. And a great line here. Smile and more of the world than ever before will smile with you. Can you talk a bit about that? Again, this is, this is these survey questions where, where uh, people are sort of asked something along the lines of, you know, on a scale of one to 10, do you consider yourself miserable or, you know, being zero or very happy being 10? Um, they come with a lot of caveats, uh, but they do seem to match up with sort of if you survey one person and then you ask their friends what answer do you think they give they, they kind of match up how often people smile seems to be connected with it uh, uh, levels of serotonin in, in, in the bloodstream seem to be somewhat somewhat connected so I, I think they, they, they do capture something right even if they're not a perfect perfect measure of feelings of, of, of well-being it does seem the trend has been for for, for rising global happiness you know, again, sort of somewhat independent of income. Uh, the latest uh, global happiness survey that just came out, uh, there is a s- suggestion that, that it did dip in COVID-19, but not as much as you might have expected, given, you know, all of the miseries of the last few few years. I, I, I think humans are quite sort of resilient to um, unfortunate circumstances in that way. Um, so we do seem to have been on this on this some, somewhat upward trend on that measure, and you kind of hope so, right? I mean, given that all of these other measures are improving, you know, if global health, COVID nineteen decided, if global global health is improving uh, everywhere, if if we're seeing you know somewhat rising incomes, but also uh, rising access to infrastructure, better housing, all this other stuff, if none of that was improving levels of happiness. You, it would actually make me wonder about the happiness measures rather than the progress. It's interesting to hear Charles' take on the relationship between poverty and war, in particular civil wars. And in thinking about how much more peaceful the world has become, it makes the current conflict in Ukraine look that much more like a terrible and sad outlier. I'm encouraged by what Charles says about rising global happiness, as our discourse in this country seems more often than not to be angry 
and divisive, I think we all do well to let it sink in that the world at large is becoming a happier place. I next wanted Charles to talk about his thoughts on overpopulation and the interesting research and writing he's done on the work of the famous English economist Thomas Malthus. Another thing uh, we worried about when I was in college and business school, in addition to the rise of Japan economically, uh, was overpopulation. And you've written uh, very persuasively about the uh, the Malthusian trap and whether or not Malthus predicted accurately. And and I'd love for you to talk about that because you know the world population has grown rapidly. Uh, there are fears that there have been fears it contributes to climate change issues. You know, more emissions, more people, more consumption. Can you talk about why you think we should be less worried about overpopulation than we've been in the past? Uh, so, so Malthus, Malthus's essay, which by the way is is a fantastic read, was written in response to uh, two authors, one of whom was uh, uh, Nicolas Caratat, uh, the, the Marquis de Condorcet, who was a French Enlightenment thinker, who, while he was on run on the run from the uh, the, the, the French Revolution uh, and and the, the Terror, um, in hiding, he wrote this book saying basically human progress is going to continue forever. Uh, it, Remarkably optimistic, and um, he, he ended up poisoned in a uh, Paris prison cell only a few months later. But anyway, uh, despite the fact he was wrong about his own life, perhaps uh, uh, his predictions for sort of what we're going to happen over the next two hundred years was: uh, we're going to, because of sort of the spread of knowledge, we're going to see uh, more democracy than ever before. We're going to see the end of colonization. We're going to see rising health. We're going to see rising education. You know, the, the, the world is going to be a better place. And Malthus wrote this book in response to Condorcet saying. Ah, rubbish. <laughs> it's all going to be grim forever. It's all going to be grim forever because immediately humans get any better off. What they do is they breed more. They produce more uh, uh, kids. Those kids need to be fed, so on and so forth. Uh, uh, there's only a limited amount of land. So if there's only a limited amount of land, you have more kids on it, um, you know, more people on it. They're going to see their, 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 their incomes, their, their livelihoods uh, worsen, and we'll sort of drop back to the standard of living we saw before. It's going to be misery from here on out. You know, Malthus wrote this rather snarky attack on Condorcet. Malthus is the one who turned out to have got the next 200 years of history completely wrong, right? Uh, we have seen hugely rising global human populations at the same time as we have seen unprecedented progress in, in global life expectancy and in global incomes and so on and so forth. And that's not just true sort of at the global level, it's also true at the country level. There just isn't. You know, Malthus's story is incomes go up, populations go up, incomes go, go back down again. That story just pretty much is true nowhere. There are few countries in Africa where maybe you can marginally say the evidence is against that view of history, but very few. What did he What did he miss, Charles? Was it Was it the impact of technology? Because it, it seems to me with things like you know improving fertilizers and and the other technologies you've mentioned that that could is that what he missed? What What was missing in the analysis? Um, that That was part of it. Um, I think the rate of technology change uh, would have taken him completely by surprise. He actually interesting interestingly wrote just as Jenner invented the smallpox vaccine. And in a later version of his book, he kind of adds a, a, an appendix saying, yeah, smallpox vaccine, great, wonderful, yeah, a few more kids survive, but oh, I've got nothing against that. But of course, it'll make no difference to the quality of life, you know, because it just means there'll be more kids back to the story, right? Um, so he started seeing these revolutionary technologies emerge and would not change his story. That's part of it. The other part of it, 
is partly about sort of his 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 um, uh, his ethics uh, or his his, his moral views. Um, he was uh, a parson uh, in the Anglican Church of Britain, and uh, at the time. Uh, Parsons in the Anglican Church uh, were very strongly opposed to any form of birth control. Um, and so he thought there was sort of no moral way to reduce the amount of babies you get from a given amount of sex. Maybe if the world still agreed with him, we would be in a different place. Uh, as it turns out, the combination of more education and uh, lower child mortality has a massive impact on how many kids the average person wants to have, the average woman in particular, wants to have. Um, uh, the more likely kids are to survive, the more you think that education is important to your children, uh, the fewer children you, you yourself want to have. And that, and that's true of sort of how many men want to have and how many, how many, how many children that women want to have and have. Right? So um, now part of the way that happens uh, is the global spread of contraception. Right? And, and Malthus will go, ew, uh, <laughs> But if, if you don't have a problem with contraception, um, you go, yay. Uh, <laughs> so um, we are actually, you know, we're, we're reaching towards big population because people are choosing their fewer children. Indeed, my worry right now is not about too many people, it's too few. If you look at the United States, you look at other rich countries, they're way below replacement fertility levels. Um, and, you know, I actually think declining populations is, is what we should be more concerned about than, than rising populations. But anyway, so he, he missed two things. He missed the fact that technology was going to allow, even in periods of fast population growth, improvements in the quality of life. And he missed or sort of couldn't deal with the fact that, that, that we were going to enter a period where um, rising incomes did not lead to more babies, but led to fewer babies. It's interesting, Charles, because there's a there's a juncture here, I think, in in uh, the importance of an optimistic mindset in influencing behavior. Because I, my children are in their 20s, and they have several friends who will say that they don't want to have children, which is a obviously a personal choice. But often the reason is because the world is in such bad shape and going to get that much worse. And that, you know, we might have 30 years of good years on this planet before climate change and another child's only going to make it worse. And so, and if you're concerned about lowering birth rates, these things start to come together. If your mindset isn't aligned with what you're describing, Charles, then it could actually exacerbate the problem, not help. Absolutely. Sorry, and two things. One, I didn't answer the second half of your, your question, I realize. Uh, uh, consumption is... Uh, a real issue. Global consumption is a real issue. Uh, if we, especially if, if the world all gets as rich as the United States and does so consuming the way the United States does today, we will be consuming in a way that will be really terrible for the planet and for our long-term quality of life. That's not going to happen. Uh, we are already seeing um, decoupling, which is continued economic growth, continued progress on, on, on other quality of life metrics, without increases in, in greenhouse gas emissions. And that's because we've invented a whole load of new technologies that allow you to you know, have the same amount of energy with less carbon costs and so on. And what we need in order to make sure that continues is continued technolo technological progress. What that requires is larger, more educated populations. And so I think you know, we really need to be focusing on, on, on that. You know, people aren't the problem. Uh, people are the solution. Uh, way too much... Um, consumption that is not sustainable, that's a problem. Um, but it's not its not the people, it's the way too much unsustainable uh, uh, consumption. We really need to sort of focus our efforts on reducing the unsustainable uh, consumption, not reducing the number of people. 
Um, it really depresses me when I hear people say things like, you know, I don't want to have kids because uh, uh, their life won't be worth living. And that it depresses me for two reasons. One is that kind of language has been around for a long time. It's, it's usually been directed at people further away from potential kids. It's usually been, I don't believe the life of somebody uh, in India is worth living because they're close to starvation and so on and so forth. So we ought to impose population control on them, which I, I think is sort of morally repulsive and wrong. And, you know, you could go out and you could survey people in India and ask them if they're happy to be there. And their answer is largely yes. So, you know, don't, don't take away their authority to say whether they are happy to be there or not. They are. Um, but when it comes to sort of, you know, having, having kids or not having kids uh, yourself, this generation growing up is the greatest generation ever on a whole bunch of measures, right? It is the most healthy. It is the most educated. If you look at its its beliefs and tolerances, they you know they're, they're the most tolerant generation ever. For all, I know that they can complain too much about the way people speak and stuff, but you know by and large they are the most tolerant generation. Right? Um, this generation is going to achieve things that we cannot even dream of. I think they are going to solve the climate crisis to the extent we leave it for them to solve, amongst many other issues. Right. So to say you don't want to add to that greatest generation, I think is sort of a, a loss for you because being a parent is, for all its frustrations, a fantastic thing. And it's a loss for the planet because, you know, your kid could grow up to be the next Einstein, to be, to be, or just, you know, forget being the next Einstein, could grow up to be a really good parent of their own, uh, to be a, a loving sibling, to be somebody who makes friends' lives better. And you're sort of denying the existence of that person on the grounds of fears that, frankly, I think are irrational. I really appreciated what Charles had to say here about the generation growing up today. I'm now at what I sometimes consider the hey, you kids, get off my lawn age. And to hear what Charles says about younger people across the globe is really helpful. They are, he says, the greatest generation on a bunch of important objective measures. They're the healthiest, the most well-educated, most tolerant that the world has ever seen. And it's inspiring to hear Charles consider the incredible changes and improvements he expects them to go out and create. Next, I wanted Charles to drill down a little more on his thoughts regarding education. Um, you mentioned a few times there education, and, and you had a line in one of your books where you said, value, you talk about valuing the ABCs and getting shots for DPT. We've talked about vaccines. Can you talk about education worldwide, the rates of education, rates of literacy, and how much that's improved? Again, we've gone from a world within, you know, just a few decades, we've gone from a world where uh, the majority of people couldn't read and write a simple sentence to one where the great majority can. Uh, there are real problems with the quality of education in, in many developing countries in particular. So people, kids sitting in school for five or six years are coming out, being able to do not much more than read a rather simple sentence. Um, and so, you know, we do need to work on policy. But more than ever before, kids are, are sitting in school getting, getting an education. Um, it's, it's gone from a rarity to even in, in the lowest income countries, sort of nine out of ten kids being, being in school. Uh, at least through primary school. 
And, you know, university education worldwide, I, th- I think we're at 40 some odd percent of, of university age kids are in 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 college um, of some description. You know, just massive changes worldwide in, in, in terms of access to education and the number of people going through it. And the potential that, you know, that suggests is just awesome. Um, you know, the, the, the number of people who could plausibly contribute to innovation and creativity is, is at a, a huge high more than it's ever been before because you've got to sort of multiply, you know, the, the, the number times the, the percentage uh, getting that kind of education and, and both the number is bigger and the percentage getting that kind of education is bigger. So, you know, put the two together, you get, you get just awesomely more people who can be part of innovation and creativity than ever before in history. And it's fantastic. And, and it seems to me it's, it's exposing people to more ideas. And uh, you mentioned this generation being more tolerant. I mean, the growth in, in you know, gender equality, and, and you mentioned there's still issues in plenty of parts of the world with human rights, but the global trend is extremely positive. Yes. Again, we, the last sort of 10, 15 years have been, have been grim, although it's a bit hard to tell why. Um, you, you can imagine it's hard to come up with completely objective measures of, of, of human rights worldwide a score on one to 10 of human rights in a country or, or of electoral integrity worldwide. Um, and there is some indication that the reason that we've seen flatlining in uh, uh, some of these measures of political freedom worldwide, some of it may be that most of the people who do the coding, who decide this is a, this country is a nine or a 10, um, uh, are, are US-based. Um, and uh, US researchers are really depressed about the state of democracy. Yes, right. They go at it with a bad attitude, yeah. Leave that aside. That. Uh, uh, you know the long-term trend is definitely um, very positive, and as you suggest, the the, the youngest generation in nearly every country worldwide uh, has has more more liberal attitudes, uh, is is more tolerant uh, than their parents were, and it does it does give me immense hope. One of the things that struck me, Charles, I'm just going to run this by you. When I read your work, is you talk a lot about uh, the United States or countries in the West and how they view the rest of the world. And it seemed to me that a lot of what you write about could apply to individuals as well. So, for example, instead of measuring ourselves by our total wealth, measuring by our total well-being and happiness, and also instead of resenting or being jealous of people who are gaining or doing better, we should realize that it's all good for everybody. Is that a fair connection? And is it good enough to ever get me in a think tank or is it, does it fall far short? <laughs> um, I think it is important. I, I think one of the interesting things about the subjective well-being literature is it's kind of taught us a whole bunch of stuff that we already knew. Right? Um, so if you go back to some of the earliest sort of ideas about what happiness was about, you know, Aristotle, all the way back to the ancient Greeks, um, they, they, they largely talk about a life well lived, right? They, they, they talk about a, a, a life where you do something meaningful with your time, that helps the broader community. And that's pretty much what comes out of the subjective well-being. Stuff, yeah. but if, 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 you're, if you're in a job that is fulfilling because you are helping others, you are happy. Now, which causes which? Maybe both cause each other. You know, who knows? But um, uh, 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 So but sort of you know, thinking beyond yourself and not thinking selfishly does seem to be a really important part of, of quality life. And people who think that their happiness, it depends a lot more on income. Uh, so think that income is a really important part of their well-being, tend to be less happy. 
Um, so you know, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I think the, 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 the subjective well-being literature does point in that direction. Uh, probably you know, easier said than done from the point of view of, 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 of enacting, acting on it, but but still true. It's, let's talk a little bit about um, democracy, the rise of democracies, the more pervasiveness of democracies, but at the same time here in the U.S., and as we record this, some concerns about things happening in Israel and other parts of the world where it feels like autocrats, if you will, are gaining ascendancy, um, nationalism. Can you talk about the general trends and then do you have concerns about where we are now or is this a blip that will, you know, inevitably the tide will continue to move towards full democracies or what are your thoughts on that? Um, I certainly hope it's a blip. I think the sort of long-term historical record suggests it's probably a blip, but of course the long-term historical record didn't just happen. Um, it's a result of, of what we do about it, right? Um, and And so... I think it's really important to be uh, an impatient optimist is the way that Bill Gates put it. I don't know how, how you want to put it, but it's, it's, it, optimism is not a grounds for um, resting on our laurels, uh, nor is all this progress a grounds for resting on our laurels. In some ways, it's quite the opposite. You know, the fact that we can make the world better is a, a moral imperative to make it better. Um, we, for most of human history, it was quite, you know, reasonable to wake up in the morning and go, the world is always going to be the way the way the world has always been in terms of basic quality of life, right? Uh, it is no longer possible to say that. Uh, we have to accept the fact that we have the power to make this world a better place. Um, and if we accept that we have the power to make this world a better place, we kind of really ought to do it. Um, and so I think that, you know, is it a blip? What's what's going on in Israel? I hope so. I, I you know, I, I, is it a blip? What we've seen in the United States over the last ten years? I, I certainly hope so. Um, you know, Brazil is a slightly positive uh, example. You know, India perhaps less so. Um, certainly, you know, a lot of big countries are not trending in the right direction right now as much as we would like. I think the you know, the answers largely lie with them, not us. But, you know, I, I hope that young people in, in Brazil and India in particular and in Russia um, uh, are, are, are brave enough to sort of, you know, fight for improved democratic rights. Um, and, you know, I hope that young people in the United States continue to believe in the value of democracy and the you know, freedom, freedom of speech and so on and, and liberties um, and fight to make them better. I think they probably will. Um, that's where my optimism comes from. But if they don't, uh, my optimism will be misplaced. That's a great way to end, Charles. You are as inspiring as uh, as you are in print. You're even more so in speaking with you. And uh, I really appreciate it. You have really described a lot of what I'm trying to accomplish here with the work we're doing at the Optimism Institute. And uh, one of the reviews for one of your books said that uh, Charles Kenny is the real deal an optimist with an economist data to back him up. So when he looks at the glass and sees it's half full, you can rest assured it's not because he needs new contacts. <laughs> <laughs> Although actually I do. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but you've, you've really laid it out beautifully for us today. And I, I can't thank you enough for your time and all the great work you've done. And if anyone out there hasn't read your books, I encourage them to do so because they're full of incredible information that's really inspiring. And I, I thank you for your work. Well, thanks very much for having, uh, having me on and, and good luck with the Optimism Institute. Thanks, Charles. 
Once again, I love hearing the enthusiasm in Charles' voice when he talks about how improving rates of education around the world, multiplied by a growing population, will equal unprecedented innovation and creativity. And how inspiring were these words? Because we can make the world better, there's a moral imperative to make the world better. Wow. It was at this point in the conversation when I finally waved my internal white flag on the idea of becoming a think tanker. There's a reason why people like Charles Kenny are in there, and people like me are on the outside looking in. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Blue Sky with Charles Kenny. If you did, please consider subscribing to the podcast so you don't miss any future episodes. And if you have the time to give us a rating or review, we'd appreciate the feedback. And for more uplifting and inspiring content about the state and future of our world, check out the Optimism Institute on social media. Until next time, I'm the founder of the Optimism Institute and host of Blue Sky, Bill Burke. And I thank you for listening.